Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'm glad to know that you did not float away this week. As much as we needed the rain, it was a lot of rain. So if you've been praying for rain, then God has heard our cries. You know, it's amazing uh, when rains like this come, it always tests the roof. And on, in our roof, we had some leaks this week in our church. Uh, and so we scrambled and tried to um, pay attention to those. And it, it always is good to um, know the leaks that we have um, in, our, in our church and our walls and our, 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 even our homes. But it was a reminder to me as I processed this week, as the week was going on, about how this is a reminder of our own lives, the leaks in our own lives that uh, we are that that attention is drawn to whenever we have the monsoons, the the rain in our life, the storms of our lives, and so we pay attention to them. And I hope that that's true for all of us. Uh, this the Sundays after Epiphany continue to celebrate the revel- the revelation, the manifestation of the glory of God to us as it was made known to the Magi and to those on Jordan's banks at the baptism of Jesus and today in the wedding of Cana. Our God rejoices over his people as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are gifts for everyone for the common good. And here the glory of God comes down from the mountain and is manifested in something as common as a wedding party. In Jesus Christ, the best wine is saved for last. Taste and see that the Lord is truly good. Now looking at our Old Testament reading, the people's return to Judah after the exile was marred by economic and political troubles. But nevertheless, the prophet declares, Jerusalem and Judah will be restored. And certainly, I hope that will be true of our own country that's in turmoil as well. That God will rejoice over Jerusalem as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And the people will be called to the celebration, to the party. Isaiah 62 verse 4 says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. Or it could be said this way, No more will anyone call you rejected, and your country will no more be called ruined. How horrible this must have been for them, as they were the chosen people of God, but they were conquered and they were in exile. Then we hear these words, But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In many ways, biblical spirituality is contained clearly in these striking words. The one who made the universe, the great builder, the architect of the cosmos, will do what? He will marry his people. He will share his life, the riches of his being with them. He will allow them to participate in his own life. He will make their land his spouse, owned and protected by the Lord. I say it is a summation, summation of biblical spirituality because here is the uniquely biblical view of God. There is no distant God at play here. There's no deist God who winds up the universe and then lets it go. There is no blind force and no cosmic energy. 
The God of the Bible is a person who speaks and acts and now declares his intention to marry his people, his chosen people that he loves. Now, this is extraordinary. Jesus is not just one prophet among many. Rather, he is the very embodiment of God, the God of Israel. So Jesus consistently speaks and acts in the very person of God. And therefore, we should not be surprised that themes of marriage and wedding come up frequently in his ministry. So we see it now in the Gospel of John this morning. The wedding uh, feast of Cana is an unforgettable story. This can seem a bit disappointing and anticlimactic that Jesus performs the first of his great signs at a wedding feast and for the purpose of increasing the amount of wine? Couldn't he have chosen a more dramatic event for this uh, first sign like raising someone from the dead or uh, the miraculous healing or uh, the feeding of the 5,000 or even the transfiguration? What we have is Jesus helping people to celebrate their wedding by increasing the amount of wine. That is always a good thing, especially if it's good wine. But against the, I knew that would get a few amens. Against the Old Testament, thank you, Patty. So, (laughs) against the Old Testament background, this seems to be altogether appropriate that a miracle will take place at a wedding and involve the increase of wine. So Jesus is in his very person, the marriage of divinity and humanity. In his very person, he is the wedding of heaven and earth. How wonderful, therefore, how appropriate that the Messiah, who himself is the very wedding of heaven and earth and divinity and humanity, makes his first public sign at a wedding. So what do we hear as the narrative unfolds? Jesus' mother is the first to speak in John's telling of the story, and she says very simply and direct, they have no wine. And, and since we are dealing here with John's gospel, we have to approach everything on a different level. So John is a writer whose work is full of symbolism and meaning. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are historical narratives, and John's intent is to reveal to us spiritual truth and meaning. So on the surface level, she is indeed commenting on a social disaster. Because running out of wine at such a party would have been profoundly embarrassing. So weddings during this age and time would go on for days. So to run out of wine would be a social social tragedy. And you wouldn't want the people who are celebrating to run out of wine and go home early. So Mary is asking Jesus to do something very practical to make things better. But if that is all there is to this we might be justified to seeing it a bit of a letdown. Is Jesus being used here for just practical purposes? This actually goes against the very character of Jesus. It goes against uh, the purposes of his miracles. It goes against the very way that he normally does things. Now we have to go deeper. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of the joy and intoxication of the divine life. So as I talk about wine and intoxication, please try to remove from our thinking drunkenness. I'm not talking about drunkenness. So when God is in us, we are lifted up and we're rendered joyful and transfigured and transformed. Our minds and hearts are renewed. 
So think of the impact that good wine has on us, the intoxicating, powerful, uplifting influence. And that is symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit operating in us. Now, I have shared these two stories with you before, but I'm going to share them again because they are just too funny. I I heard of a story about an Italian Catholic trying to start a vineyard in northeast Georgia near the town of Helen. Now, many of you know that uh, Don and I met in Atlanta, Georgia, so we know of the town of Helen. So the county commissioners were a group of good southern evangelical Christians. And don't forget, this is the Bible Belt. So the county was dry, like most of the rest of the royal Georgia. And the leaders were not too keen on granting permission for a winemaking business. So the man was very confused by their attitude. And most of all, he could not understand how making wine could be considered unchristian. After all, he said, did not our Lord turn water into wine at the wedding of Cana in Galilee? Well, the remark sure got them stirred up because every good southern evangelical was very clear on the fact that though Jesus may have turned the water into what we call wine, it was not wine as we know it. It was certainly grape juice. Unfermented, non-alcoholic, the recipe that was lost from the biblical times until the 1800s when a dentist and Methodist communion steward named Welch rediscovered it. So anyway, the Italian Catholic winemaker stood there in amazement as the people argued amongst themselves into the chair, used his gavel and called order and he said, Well, I have researched this thing and I have to say that there was no such thing as unfermented grape juice in biblical times. They didn't have the technology for it. Jesus really did turn water into wine. And all I have to say about this is I'm disappointed in the Lord. (laughs) Okay. You know about the police officer who pulled the priest over and said, Reverend, have you been drinking? The priest said, no, just water. And the officer said, well, why do I smell wine? And the priest said, oh, he did it again. (laughs) So when Mary says they have no more wine, she is not just talking about a practical problem. She is speaking about something much deeper and more profound. Mary is speaking about a great deficiency at the heart of Israel and the whole of the human race that we have run out of the joy that comes from union and fellowship, relationship and intimacy with God and the divine life. We are no longer intoxicated, uplifted, transfigured, nor transformed. We're no longer in communion with God. There is no more wine. And now we can see precisely why Jesus says to Mary, woman, How does this concern of yours involve me? So we can be easily misled into thinking that he's being rude or disrespectful to his mother. No, she is represented here of all suffering Israel, of all of humanity, of each one of us today complaining to God that the joy of life has run out and asking for grace, for more, for more of God to come to do something in the now. So Mary said, Do whatever he tells you. I think that's always good advice. What do you think when it comes to the Lord? She's instructing the stewards to do what Jesus tells them. She is the voice of Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. All of those who over the century who have called Israel to fidelity and loyalty to faithfulness. Do whatever God tells you and you will find life even if the command is challenging, difficult, and painful. Sometimes whenever we come together and we have honest, real conversations about the things that God calls us to do, we have to look at each other and have to say, it's not always easy. It's not always easy. But we're called to a higher way of living and to do what is right, even when it's not easy. God sent the prophets, one after another, to tell Israel what to do. Was it because God was bossy? Well, it depends on how you define bossy. He wants to give them life. He knew them. He created them. He set them free from bondage. And He knew what was best for them. What brings abundant life. So if you define bossy in the sense that He has a way for them to live, yes, He is bossy. The trouble was that Israel did not always do what God told them. And neither do we. So here is Mary now summing up all of these great figures and saying very simply, do whatever he tells you. In him you will find joy, significance, worth, purpose, intoxication, and life. The wine that you've been missing. Jesus then instructs the servants to fill to the brim six water jars that were used for ceremonial washing, Jewish rites of purification. So again, this seems like an incidental detail, but with John, we always have to dig deeper. The jars are invocative of the entire tradition of Jewish religion and ritual. And all the ways that Israel tried to make themselves acceptable to God, all of these ways pointed to something better. Friends, here's the message. When we are hooked up to the divine life, when we are married to God, abundant, joyful, intoxicating life never runs out. In our epistle this morning, the congregation at Corinth experienced division as people were comparing one another's spiritual gifts, thinking some to be superior to others. And all of these gifts, services, activities can be actually interpreted as spiritual happenings, are activated by God for a purpose. Each person, Paul says, is given a manifestation of the Spirit to be used for the common good, for the work of ministry, the flourishing of the people of God, for the work of the kingdom of God. So Paul invites this fractured community to trust that God's Holy Spirit has gifted them all perfectly for their mission together. So Paul's words offer a refreshing, even shocking reminder that faith is never private and that each gift has been given and it's meant to be shared. So Jesus reveals that he bears God's creative power and and joyful presence in the world. Look how much there is. The six stone jars that John speaks of would together hold anywhere roughly between 120 and 180. So let's just say 150 gallons. Uh, Yeah, 150 gallons of wine. That is about 800 bottles of wine. Now that is one heck of a party. 
In fact, it's a bit like the picnic in the the desert four chapters later when Jesus feeds the crowds out of next to nothing and they find 12 baskets of bits and pieces left over. This is all about God's extravagant provision. God's generous overflowing of grace and love. The glory of heaven filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom of God isn't merely about saving face, making sure that things are okay and that people aren't offended and that the bride and the groom get away with it. No, the kingdom of God is about the extravagant love and the provision of Almighty God. Joyful life that only comes in and through Him. The kingdom of which we can have a small taste now is generous beyond all comprehension. So the story is about revelation, it's about manifestation, it's about extravagance, but it's also about victory. This great story takes up only 11 verses at the beginning of John's gospel, yet the significance of what's packed in those 11 verses can't be underestimated. We learn about God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ that was made manifest to the entire world. We learn and taste of the extravagance of the kingdom of God. And we learn of God's eventual victory. Despite our circumstances, and regardless of the depressed state of the world, whether we're talking about the Jewish world in which the text was written, or the world that we live in today, we also learn that Jesus likes weddings very much. He likes a party. So so if we've grown up in a fundamentalist, legalistic background and we just shudder when we hear the word party, we need to loosen up a little bit. God likes parties. Don and I were able to watch and celebrate yesterday with Father Charles and Monique at their wedding in San Diego. Not just of the miracle that Father Charles is married, (laughs) but because it was a good lovely, beautiful reminder of this wonderful story this morning. I looked all over the place, but I couldn't find those 800 bottles of wine. (laughs) Come, taste, find joy, and live.